theyeshiva.net. Okay, today's class is dedicated by Dvora Ziger. Thank you very, very much. We are grateful and atzlocha in everything. So, I assume, I could, I think, speculate fairly that most people across the globe who are giving this week a class in Parshas Mishpatim will not focus on the Pesukim that we are going to focus on. You'll see why in a moment. We read it, we learn it. We are Jews who embrace Torah, Min Hashemayim, so we accept it. But we do it a little fast, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And certainly people don't say, okay, let me give, I'm looking for a really inspirational class today. I think this is, this is the Pasuk. Especially there are plenty Sukkim that seems so beautiful and enthralling and inspiring about love and generosity and fairness and justice and kindness and being there for the poor and the homeless and not oppressing foreigners and refugees. There's plenty of material that is really the foundation of human civilization. But I decided that uh, <laughs> we should focus on these Sukkim because I think, on the contrary, it's so important to be able to, if I could say, go into, so to speak, to the lion's den or to the thicket of those psukim that to our modern sensibilities seem so difficult to wrap our brains around. And you'll see in a moment what I'm talking about. It won't be hard to see why people are not comfortable giving a class on these psukim. And yet, try to uh, explore and figure out maybe there's really much more than what would meet the eye at first glance and would really make people very uncomfortable, especially in the 21st century. And I am referring to the first source, the first line in your source sheets, which is Shmois Perik Chafalov Pasuk Zayin, Exodus chapter 21, verse 7, close to the beginning of Parshas Mishpatim, and you hear it in the first words, V'chiyimkar ish ezbitay la'amma, when a man sells his daughter as an amma, as a slave, she should not leave as slaves leave. It's not easy to digest what is the Torah telling us here. So now we are selling our daughters as slaves, and this is one of the opening sukkim in Parshas Mishpatim, which is the first parsha after Matan Torah. So Matan Torah, last week, Parshas Yisra, is the Jewish people receive, so to speak, their mandate, the divine revelation, Aseris Hadibras, the Ten Commandments, and then begins a series of many nuanced and detailed laws dealing with civil relations, civil justice, business transactions, including slaves, maidservants. And this is right there in the beginning. Is this the protocol for life? Is this the blueprint, the manual of the creator of the world? to fathers, especially, and this is where it becomes even more difficult to understand, the lack of sensitivity and empathy cries out because Parshas Mishpatim begins the second half of Sefer Shmois. You have Shmois, the book, the second book, the book of Exodus, the Rambam calls it Sefer Agula, the book of redemption, Shmois Ve'er Bay B'Shalach Yisrael, the first five portions, then you have Mishpatim Trumat Etzavah Kisisav Ayakal Pkudeh, the last six portions. The first five, in many ways, are a story. It's the story of the Jewish people coming down into Egypt, 
the story of the exile, the story of the oppression, the story of the tur- torture, the persecution, the killing, the deaths of the newborn babies. Then begins the story of redemption and the ten plagues and the Jewish people leave and the splitting of the sea and the various challenges in the desert. And finally, Easter, they arrive at Mount Sinai, they receive the Torah. And afterwards, Hashem now begins to share the mitzvahs, the laws of the Torah. Right, really, the story ends at Yisrael and now begins from Mishpatim. There's also a lot of stories, but it's all intertwined with many halachas. Mishpatim is laws of civility, civil relations, and then Truma begins the building of the Mishkan, and that will continue. So when you read the first half of Parshas Mishpatim, what is the overarching theme? The evil of slavery. The terrible predicament that the Hebrews, the Jewish people, suffered because they were turned into oppressed slaves. That is the main theme, and that Paroi will not get away with it. That's the theme. Paroi thinks he will get away with it. Amosh Rabbeinu says, after all, there is justice in the world. There is liberty in the world. People are responsible of how they treat other people. And you can't just do something because you can. Because I could be a master, therefore I could. I, I'm going to be a master. And I quoted just that Pasek, which, which really highlights the sensitivity in the beginning of Shmois, chapter 1. We're now chapter 20. The Egyptians embitter their lives with, with oppressive labor in mortar and bricks and all of the work in the field, but the work was all done in a way of parach. They, they, they subjugated them. The Jewish people groaned, they moaned from the work. They cried out. And their cry reaches Hashem from all their slave labor. This is just two examples of two psukim and parashat And here we see the Torah is trying to bring out the sensitivity and the empathy that Rebbeinu Shalom has to these oppressed slaves. And this becomes the foundation of all ethics, the foundation of all human relations. In fact, I think it's not a mistake to say that probably most, maybe even all, revolutions that have been conducted throughout history where slaves felt compelled to set themselves free were inspired in one form or another by the Exodus story. The entire movement of uh, abolition, of freeing the slaves in the United in, in, in America in the 19th century most of its carriers constantly quoted Psukim from Parsha Shmois, and they compared themselves to Moses, to Moshe Rabbeinu, freeing the slaves, including not long ago Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1950s and 1960s. Because this really became the foundation of the idea that humans should not be oppressing other humans, and every person carved in the image of God is entitled to liberty and dignity and respect. That's the whole theme of the first half of Shmois. And God intervenes and intervenes once in history to establish that truth. Suddenly comes, okay, now you're free. So let me give you laws. One of the first laws, don't forget, when you sell your daughter into slavery, Hazois Nami? Is this why we got out of Mitzrayim? So now I'm going to do it to my own child. You see why I told you people don't give a shear on these verses. But let's learn them together. It's Perich Hafalev, 
Shmois Chafalaf, and it goes Pasuk Zayin, Ches, Tes, Yud, Yud, Aleph. It's five Pesukim. As usually in Chumash, the laws are very brief, very sharp, very concise. It's five Pesukim to cover this halacha, this law. And I'm just going to tell you, each Pasuk becomes more difficult than the previous one. In the sense of what? So let's read it inside, and then we're going to uh, try to unravel it. Be'ezer Hashem. I'm just translating. You have the English translation right below the Hebrew, so you could follow either. When a parent, a father, a man, a parent, a man sells a daughter as a slave, she shall not go free as other slaves do. Okay. Next, Pasuk if she proves to be displeasing to her master, not good. Ra means not good, bad for her in the eyes of her master. Asher loy ya'ada. Now here it's interesting because in Chumash you have what's called kri and ksiv. Sometimes a word will be written one way, pronounced another way. Okay, so here you have a word. The way it's written is loy ya'ada lamed vav. That's why it's in parentheses. The way it's pronounced and explained is loy with an aleph. Loy Loy with a vav means to him. Loy with an aleph means not. So it's loy loy. It sounds, the pronunciation is identical, but the meaning is opposite. Loy means to him. Loy with an aleph, you say in Yiddish, loy metanal means no. So asher loy If she's, if her master finds her displeasing, asher loy He did not designate her for himself. He did not betrothed her. Then, vehefta. Then, he must let her be redeemed. From the word paida, pidya. He shall not have the right to sell her to outsiders because he betrayed her. Next, pasektes. What if the master designates her for his son? Then, he should relate to her according to the practice, according to the laws of young women. If he takes another woman, never withhold her food, her clothing, or her intimacy. If he fails her in all these three ways, she shall go free, without any payment. And then the Torah goes off to another law, starts dealing with laws of murder, beating people and killing people and fat- calling fatalities and the consequences of that, changes the subject completely. So here you have classic example of the original Torah, five psukim, Zayin Ches, Tes Aleph in chapter 21 of Shemais. And when we actually read it inside, literally every line creates another question, and begs another question, and another dilemma, besides the emotional discomfort, so it's even trying to wrap around, wrap our brains around the simple meaning. Let's go through the words for a moment. When a man sells, first person, when a man sells his daughter as a ama, as a maidservant, or as a slave, she shouldn't go out like slaves go out. What is that supposed to mean? <laughs> Don't, she shouldn't go out like, so that means she never goes out, slaves do go out, does it mean she goes out in a different way than slaves go out? What does it mean? It's so ambiguous. She shouldn't go out like slaves go out. 
How do slaves go out? How does she go out? What does this mean? Is this a leniency? Is this a stringency? Why would a parent sell a daughter? That's a good question. That's the first question, yeah. Yeah. Seitze means go out, but here it means go free. The word seitze means go out, but here obviously it means go out in terms of liberation. Obviously, some, some contrast from slaves. What is that? It's very unclear. So here you have a law, you're telling me a law, but very ambiguous. Next, you go to the next verse. If her master finds her displeasing, he did not marry her. He has to let her be redeemed. He betrayed her and therefore he should not sell it to somebody else. In other words, if he does not want to marry her, don't think you could sell it to somebody else. You betrayed her, you can't. But one second. What does it mean? Who's talking about marriage here? Who's talking about marriage? Suddenly there's a shidduch going on? I don't understand. It says a man, and we, we already don't like this guy, right? Whoever this guy is, yeah... We don't like him. I don't know his name. Thank God the Torah doesn't give a name because I, I would move. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The father. The father. We have issues with the father. <laughs> Maybe not. We'll soon see. Maybe we'll redeem him. We'll redeem his daughter and we'll redeem him. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so suddenly, who's talking about marriage? He didn't marry her? What, he asked his father to marry the daughter? You said he's, the father sold her as a slave. Suddenly, you find her displeasing because you don't marry her. Well, he, he, purchased it for a complete, he purchased her for a completely different purpose. And then the Torah says, don't sell it to anybody else because you betrayed her. Why are you calling him? Maybe the father betrayed her. Bevigdai bab, bagged in Hebrew is a traitor. Right? Baged, live God. Huh? A rebel, but, but Gida means treason. They call it treason. He, he betrayed her. He, he, he broke faith. He did the wrong thing. But one second. If there's a law that he's allowed to purchase, this girl, what, what do you want from him? <laughs> Why are you calling him Bevigdai Va? Then we come to the third verse. If he designates her for his child, Kemishpat who's talking about his child. So now there's a Nushadach with his son. Where did that come into the picture? And then the Torah says, Follow the law, the practices of Bonos. Bonos means girls, young women. What, what's that about? Where is there a practice? Where is there such a law? You see the ambiguity. What, what is going on here? What is this Mishpat? Then he says, If he takes another wife, So then, make sure that she gets her food, she gets her clothing, and she gets her intimacy. What is that talking about? And then he says, and if you don't do these three things, if you fail in which three things? Then she goes out for free, no money. So he bought her. He paid, I don't know what he paid to the father, but he paid $100,000, a half a million dollars, whatever the amount is. There's three things you have to do. And if you don't do these three things, she just goes out and you lose all your money. So, so what happened? So he just... He gave money, and then he didn't do these three things. Was this part of the condition? So this is, here's a classic example why Teresh on its own is almost impossible to decipher. 
Here you have classic verses. If I'm trying to create a society, I'm trying to, to understand this, I have more questions than answers. Which is why, you'll see in your next source, Hagdamas Mishnah Torah Rambam. The Rambam, considered the greatest codifier in Jewish history, who lived in the 12th century, he was born 1135, passed away 1204, the Rambam opens up his introduction to his Mishnah Torah, which is the book that compiles all of Halacha, with three words, Torah Bifirusha Nitna. Torah came with a pirush, with a commentary. The commentary was not written. The commentary was oral. In other words, when Moshe Rabbeinu gave the Jewish people text, it came with commentary. He didn't give text. Here, go learn. No. He actually gave a lecture. And then the text, uh, uh, the text summarized the lecture. Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, the great rabbi of Frankfurt, writes that to understand how Torah was given, it's the opposite of how we understand it. We understand this Torah Shabbat this is the written Torah. And then this Torah Shabbat which is the oral tradition. al means it was given mouth to, through the mouth, not through text. In other words, you have a teacher and a student. It's a live communication. It's not a book. And that was a commentary. He says, really, it was the opposite. Moshe Rabbeinu taught the Jewish people. For 40 years, that was going on. Moshe Rabbeinu is called our Rebbe for a reason. He was a leader, he was a prophet, he was a redeemer, right? He was, uh, he was, he was great in so many areas. The Rambam says he was Mifchar Minha Nushi. He was the ultimate of what a human being could be. But he's called Rabbeinu. He's our Rebbe. He's our teacher. Moshe Rabbeinu woke up in the morning. I don't know how much he slept at night from what was going on in the desert, doesn't like he got much sleep. But uh, I'm saying he woke up in the morning. <laughs> the Kutzke Rebbe once said that, the, it says by the Akedah, what was the Nisoyen of the Akedah? Hashem told him directly. Well, what, 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 most, if Hashem tells you directly. So he says, Vayashkim Avram Baboyk. It says Avram woke up in the morning. It means he went to sleep the night before. That's how calm he was. So Moshe Rabbeinu... It, Moshe, it's a very, very powerful insight. But Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching. That's what he did. So he taught the halachas. How long did the lecture last? I don't know. A half an hour, an hour, a few hours. The Gemara in Erevin discusses the whole system. First he taught his brothers, and then he taught his nephews, and he taught Yeshua bin Nun, and the elders, and he taught the whole of the Jewish people. Everybody heard it directly from Moshe if they wanted to. Then... Let's say a four-hour lecture or a four-day lecture, a four-week lecture, Moshe summarized in text in a few psukim. So actually, the text is a commentary. The text is a is a, a summary of the lecture. That's why when you read the text, you know, if you're sitting at a shear and you love what you're hearing, so you take notes. But if you take too many notes, you're going to lose your train of thought and you're going to miss it. So you just do what we call uh, what's the word? Ah, uh, yeah, cliff notes. A short summary. You come home and you're like, it was an amazing class. So whoever is home, say your husband, say, what, what? Let me see your notes. Look at notes. I don't see anything here. You see one word underlined like six times because you got excited then, right? One word. What's so inspiring? And then you'll always say the same thing. You had to be there. Yeah, yeah. So today we have videos, Baruch Hashem, so he could listen on triple speed for the ADHD. But triple speed was created 
for Rabbi YY. You know that. <laughs> the Mishnah says everybody is obligated to say the world was created for me. So I say double speed, triple speed were created for my classes. Although I have to say, I got one of the greatest compliments ever a little while ago. A fellow here, Muncie, told me he travels every day to Manhattan for work. And he says, I dread, for 25 years I dread the George Washington Bridge when I go in and when I go out. Till I started to hear your classes. Because there's always traffic and thank God you are never brief. (laughs) She says, it never happened. That the traffic was done and you were finished. Never. You're always ma- managed to outsmart the traffic. He says, once it happened that you were done, you were done, and, uh, and, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The traffic was done and you, of course, you weren't finished. And I said to myself, you know what? I wouldn't mind a little more traffic so I could finish the shear. So I was like, oh, that, that's, that's a compliment. So you'll tell, you'll tell the husband, you had to be there. That's true with Chumash. When we read Chumash, we're reading everything. It's not just somebody took cliff notes. It's the notes that were dictated by Hashem to Moshe, so they have inside every nuance of what he said. But you have to unravel it. It's not just somebody sitting and just summarizing it to the best of their ability. It's the ultimate summation. And that's why the Gemara says in Tainus, There's not a single Halacha in Torah Shabal Peh that's not hinted to or alluded to in the text. The text is so brilliant because one Pasuk or five Pesukim can capture a lecture of a month. Lectures that are going on for a month. So when you read a Mishnayis and Gemara unraveling Halachas, it's not that it's disconnected. The rabbis came up with some ideas to make sense out of it. On the contrary, they're going back to the lecture of Moshe Rabbeinu, which the text is simply a summation of. Why is this so important? When you have five verses like this, you see exactly there's so many gaps. Without hearing the lecture, what did Moshe say? I'm filled with gaps. Once I heard it, now I have these five psukim, it's all there. So we have to basically go the opposite direction. The Jewish people living at the time, they heard the shear and then they got the text. We have the text, and from the text, we say, so what did he say? And that was the function of Tereh Shabalpa whether it's Mishnayas, Gemara, Midrashim, and the Svarim afterwards. Yeah? <laughs> that's truth. Mishnayas itself is also very concise and cryptic, and that's why there was the Gemara. But over there it's a little different, because over there, it's already, Mishnayas is already very specific, fixed laws, but there's still so much to, left to be said because it is so concise and cryptic, and it relied on a very high level of knowledge and intelligence. So in the next generations, the Gemara came and unraveled that text. Now, the Gemara's text is very elaborate, but yet, still, <laughs> remained very cryptic for many. So you have commentaries like Rashi, and Toysavis, and other of the great Rishonim who do that, and the conversation continues till today, which makes it really, what's the point of it? It's interactive. It's live. It's a relationship. It's not just you're reading a text and you have it all there. It's an ongoing relationship of exploration, of creativity. There's a partnership in, 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 in Torah between Hashem and the Jewish people. So I say this because this is always the sensitivity one must have when they're reading the text of Chumash. And many people don't. They just go to the text, 
boom, this is racism, this is bigotry, this is child abuse. I, there's other psukim that condemn all that. Well, probably different authors. I don't know, he had a bad day. Whatever it is. But it's really the lack of an awareness of how to read the text. So that's what we want to do. We want to focus on what was the sheer behind this text. So we don't have a recording of Moshe Rabbeinu's lecture. And I'm not going to have the chutzpah, the audaciousness to tell you what Moshe Rabbeinu said when he said these psukim. But, but, with the help of Teresh HaBal Peh, we can come to many, many realizations what is behind all of these verses. And then we see a different picture unfolding. And psukim that seemed so uh, difficult to wrap our brains around, for good reason, are revealed to be otherwise. But, in order to do this, we first have to understand something about culture. It's very important when you understand, when you're studying history, or the law of history, to understand the climate that people lived in. We thank God, at least I could say about myself, and I think some people who grew up in the country I grew up in, and the time I grew up, don't know what hunger means. Sure, when you go to a hotel and lunch is over, if the tea room is not open within five minutes, people want to sue the hotel managers because they're starving. People are starving like they haven't eaten nine days, even though they didn't stop eating macaroons, ladyfingers, kosher Pesach pizza, or squeezing orange juice, but there was enough food on Pesach, whether it's kartoshka or or schmaltz herring, however you do it, uh, checking your sugar, not checking your sugar, cooking your sugar, cooking your salt, each home according to its unique Pesach experience. But Acheren Shal Pesach at night, we're starving. We are starving, especially for chametz, for pizza, for, for pasta, for pretzels. You have to see in the hotels the attack on the Shmogas board, where you can actually eat real chametz, because for nine days or for eight days, we have been deprived. Uh, yeah, so I'm saying this in humor because we don't understand. Thank God. Thank God. And I want to tell you something else. I think it was around 10 or 15 years ago for the first time in human history that since Adam and Chava, more people around the world died from obesity than from famine. That is unprecedented in, in almost 6,000 years of history. We have to understand that. <laughs> More people died from Coca-Cola. I'm nothing against Coca-Cola, but the concept of Coca-Cola. Then from the opposite of malnutrition. There are still places in the world with, with hunger, unfortunately, and children who die from malnutrition, but it's pro- most, mostly because of corruption from governments. And the fact that we're not allocating our resources appropriately. People always ask me, it says in Benching, He nurtures the whole world. Do you know how many children today are suffering from malnutrition in Africa? Well, how do you say God nurtures the whole world? But we know when it says, It means God put in the resources into the planet that we should take responsibility to help ourselves and each other. When we become narcissistic or corrupt, yes, people do suffer. The point here is, how did I get into hunger? Oh, we don't know what hunger is. We don't know what hunger is. My father told me when he was in the Second World War, they were in the Soviet Union in Leningrad. I don't know if you know the history. He says we saw corpses on, on, on everywhere and there wasn't, no, nobody was shot, nobody was killed. There was a siege of the Germans and just, you know, people died like flies simply from starvation. And then they ran to a place called Samarkand in Uzbekistan and there too. And that's why he would sit at our table and he 
he could not understand that you don't finish your plate. Who finishes their plate in America? You ever see what happens in restaurants? Who finishes their plate, right? He couldn't understand. He would finish that plate, you know, chasal said the Pesach, because I asked him, what, what? Baruch Hashem, mommy made a lot of food. <laughs> he said, you had to know how I grew up. You had to know what I saw when I was a kid in Leningrad. You didn't see this in Brooklyn in the 21st or 20th century. It's important to understand this also. This is even in our generation. I'm talking about, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And unfortunately, you still have some places in the world like this. But you're talking about hundreds of years ago and thousands of years ago. There was no concept of a grocery store. There was no concept. You come into a shul, there's a coffee, there's a tea, there's a cookie. Even if you don't eat sugar, there's a cookie. And then you have time cheshabas, and you have kopeses, and you have chavrasim cheshabas v'yamtif, and your neighbor is bechlal a nice person. Right? When, when Stalin wanted to kill the Ukrainians who weren't ready to give themselves over to socialism, right? they just seized the grain, and close to more than 6 million, 5, 6 million people died in the early, late 1920s, early 1930s in Ukraine, simply famine, starvation. They were farmers, they ate grain. There's no grain, that's it. When you learn a Mishnayis Tainis, when there was no rain, how there used to be Geyser Tainis, i like, so it's not raining. What's the big deal? Go to the store and buy potato chips. Right? People don't understand. My field was my source of food. I had no other source of food besides my field. That was it. I couldn't go to neighbors. There was no surplus. There was no nash. There was a yid here. He lived in uh, Wesley Hills. I think his name was Shapiro. Some of you may have known him. He... Uh, he passed away a few years ago. I think he was over a hundred. And he learned in Yeshiva's Chachme Leblin. So uh, he needed help building his sukkah. So he called Rabbi Waxman, Rabbi Ephraim Waxman, if he could send a few boys from his yeshiva to help him build a sukkah. So Rabbi Waxman sent a few boys to help build a sukkah. And they finished, and he wanted to give them something. So uh, Mr. Shapiro gave them some mezainas. He put out a little mezainas. So they ate... And they enjoyed it. He gave them a drink. And then he asked them if he should bring them a siddur to make alamichya. They said he doesn't have to bring a siddur. He almost fainted. He almost fainted. He calls Rabbi Waxman. They know alamichya baal peh. They know alamichya by heart. Now usually to call a Rosh Hashiva and say, you know, the kids know alamichya by heart. Right? Wow. And, and, and he, what, what was the Kiddush of this? And then he realized, he says, he says, of course. And then he realized the discrepancy. He says, we ate a shtikl mezaynas once a year. Purim. <laughs> there was no mezaynas. So how would you know Allah mechia by heart? <laughs> Brachas that you make, right? If you ask somebody to say the whole nusach of berchas achama by heart. <laughs> you do it once in 28 years. He said, they had mezaynas. They didn't know Allah mechia by heart. <laughs> He was shocked. He didn't know, right? That in every yeshiva you go in and there's a lot, a lot of cake right in the beginning. Maybe there should be cucumbers, but for whatever reason, until they change it, it's cake. You come in and you eat cake. And this is, you know, he grew up in the 20s and the 30s. You talk about thousands of years ago, it's important, very important to understand this. I'm saying this because without understanding that, the context of these halachas can't be understood. So now, let's 
Let's actually get into it. Let's see. I was once teaching this, and there was somebody who was very, very cynical, and they said, stop selling boats, you're going to distort these psukim, just say the truth, God doesn't care if you take your daughters and you sell them into slavery for life, and it's fine, because that's how you treat women, that's how you treat girls, that's how you treat your daughters, just say it as is, you don't have to make a class out of it to make it sophisticated. (laughs) This guy really had an an axe to grind. I said, listen, if you already reached conclusions before the class, fine. I'm not, uh, I'm not judging you. Fine, if that's your conclusion. But if you want to be intellectually honest, just take the same parsha, parsha's mishpatim, and read through the whole parsha. But read everything, and then unless you believe that somebody was pasha completely, completely schizophrenic with split personalities, and and God forbid had I don't know borderline personality or some other issue, if you want to be intellectually honest and consistent you will reconsider your position. For example, a little later it says, if there's somebody living in your midst who is a refugee, who is a foreigner, who had to run away, who came from a different nation, don't cause them stress. Why? You know the heart of what it means to be a foreigner, to be unwelcome not to feel integrated. You know what it's like to be bullied when you're the new kid in the class. I said, what does that sound like? What does that sound like? This is not your daughter. This is not your son. This is somebody you don't know. But you know the heart. And that's a revolution because very often we say hurt people hurt people. It's not always true. But hurt people often hurt others. What was done to me, I do to others. And here the Torah is saying it could be otherwise. Hurt people know how not to hurt people. It's a change in that conception. My pain can become a catalyst for deeper empathy, for deeper compassion. That's in the same Parshish Mishpatim. The same Parshish Mishpatim says, Almana The worst thing that God cares about is taking exploiting a widow or an orphan, because in ancient society, they were often protect, protect, I want to say protectless, but that's not a word, what's the word? Unprotected. They didn't have the patriarch with the power or the money or the affluence, and they were vulnerable to the elements, and anybody can exploit the orphan. The orphan doesn't have a father who's going to stand up to uh, whoever it is. So the Torah says, God says, I'm taking responsibility for these people. And if they scream, and they don't stop screaming, I'm going to hear that cry. The same Parshas Mishpatim. St. Parshas Mishpatim says that if somebody doesn't have money and they're starving, you're obligated to give them your money. We're really? Again, in today's world, I have extra money, I'll throw a couple of dollars. In that world, I was giving you literally what I need for my kids. That's an obligation in Parshas Mishpatim. I said, so just realize, just to say, tell you, yeah, sell your kids as slaves. Sure, why not? Your daughter, sell her as a slave. What's there? What's a daughter for if not for slavery? I said, I know it's satisfying your, your preconceived notions or maybe some pain or anger you have, which I'm not judging you for, but you gotta be intellectually honest. So the Rambam in Hilcha Savadim, the laws of slaves, starts giving us the background of Moshe Rabbeinu's lecture. 
And Moshe Rabbeinu was talking about a specific thing. And another question is, why is this relevant right in the beginning of Mishpatim, which right away deals with the laws of the Jews came out of slavery. Baruch Hashem, they had a lot of money. They had all the money from Egypt. They had all the money of the Red Sea. Everybody was affluent. They had man. Nobody had to sell anybody. Nobody had to sell their daughter. Right away he goes into these laws. And here we'll see something fascinating. A normal father doesn't sell his daughter for anything. <laughs> and you don't sell your son, you don't sell your daughter. It's not what a mother does, it's not what a father does. That's not what a father and son do. And if they do it, then they're probably crazy or evil and they're dangerous people. And you've got to be very, very careful and they have to be dealt with completely different. The Rambam says what Moshe Rabbeinu was talking about is a very, very tragic and specific case. What was this tragic and specific case? So let's see the next source. Rambam Hilchas Avadim Perek Dalat. Ein ha'av rashay limker is bitay. A father is forbidden to sell his daughter Eliim Kain ha'ani. He has reached a stage of poverty. V'loy nishar loy klum. The man has nothing. Loy karka. He has no real estate. He doesn't own a house or a field or a farm. Loy metaltalin. Okay, you may not own real estate, right? But you have shoes. You have a watch. Well, then they didn't have watches. You have a shirt. You have a robe. You have a tuxedo. You have a nice hat. The man doesn't own a shirt. The man doesn't have an undershirt. Why is this so important? You're talking about a situation that a girl is growing up in a house and she doesn't have breakfast. She doesn't have lunch. She doesn't have supper. She doesn't have something to put on. The father doesn't have what to put on. The mother doesn't have what to put on. In other words, you're dealing with a desperate, desperate situation. Now obviously, if he has a rich brother in America, right, the way it used to be, he sends a telegram to America and his rich brother redeems him. But he doesn't have a rich brother in America. He has nothing. Maybe people lent him money and he didn't have what to pay back. So that's all, that's gone. So you're dealing here with a situation of a girl who's literally starving. So now we have an option. The option is, dignity of women, starve to death. That's an option. There was one other option, a very difficult option, a tragedy. What's the option? Very interesting halacha. Halacha is, he comes to a household of somebody who's affluent, somebody who has money, somebody who has food, and somebody who wants help. They want help. What you would might call a live-in today, right? So he says, you know what? Here. Here's my daughter, let her have a house where she could stay and she'll be obligated to stay to make it worthwhile for the person and she can fulfill tasks in the house and receive the needs to be able to live. So now what's happening is instead of dying from hunger, instead of thirsty for a cup of, for a drink, hungry for bread, he sells his daughter. What does it mean he sell? When we hear the word sell, it's very, very, you know, it conjures very negative images, especially slavery in the South, which makes sense. But really the concept is, he's putting his daughter and saying, here, so to speak, you'll have her as a daughter, and she'll be helping in the house, and she gets the sustenance that she needs, the parnasa she needs, with kindness and with respect. Now you could say, oh, so she's a slave? So now she's a slave because she's starving? So we're allowed to exploit her into slavery? 
So now we have to come to the next halacha that Moshe Rabbeinu taught. And this is actually explicit in Chumash. Take a look at the next source. Rambam Hilchas Avadim Perik Aleph. Kol Eved Ivriya Fascinating halacha. Every Jewish slave or female maidservant. This female maidservant. The master has an obligation to make him or her equal with him when it comes to eating and drinking, clothing and living quarters. The Torah says in Parashat Rei, it has to be good for him together with you. Whatever you have, he has. Whatever you have, she has. Whatever your wife has, whatever your daughters have, she has. What does that mean practically? Don't say, I'm going to eat the better bread. I'm a fine schmecker. And she can eat paskibar. She can eat the regular bread, inferior bread. You're going to give her your wine. But you get ah, the 200 bottle wine. You get Yayin Yashon, old, good wine. She can drink new wine, it's fine. You go to the wine store, you give her uh, Mascati. Bartanura, a new bottle of wine. What are you complaining? I like that better than the other wines, but but I'm terrible with that, so I'm not a connoisseur. Ata Yashon Algabe Muchin. You will sleep on Muchin. Muchin is soft pillows with feathers. Vuhu Yashon Algabe Yateven. And he could sleep on the straw. Ata Darbikrach, Vuhu Bikfar. You live in the big city, and you put her in a village. Or the other way, you're in the suburb. You know, you ran away to Rockland County, and she has to stay in Brooklyn with the traffic. They go out from you, they're living with you. From here, the sages concluded. If you acquire this young man or this young woman as a slave, what you really just acquired was a master. <laughs> That's, you acquired a master, which is a very humorous way of saying, be careful with a Jewish employee. <laughs> right? You're not hiring, some of you know this, you're not hiring an employee, you're not, you're hiring, you're hiring a master. But in, in, in sincere halachic terms, what they're saying is, this girl that you bought, to help out in the house, just realize, if there's one piece of chicken for dinner, right, she's the one who gets it, you don't get it, right? If there's one uh, sushi uh, roll, one sushi roll, yeah, and everybody else is eating, I don't know, smashed potato, or chalaptas from last sukkahs, chalaptas are, uh, what are they, stuffed cabbage from last sukkahs, she's getting the sushi, you can eat the chalaptas from last sukkahs, you go to the freezer. Hopefully the sushi is good. The sushi is bad, then you eat it, then you give her uh, the better food. But that's a fascinating halacha. So when we right away say sell as a slave, and we're thinking about what happened in the South, here in the United States of America, which was quite horrific, tragic, and sad, it's so important to understand this halacha. Yes, she's going to be working for you. Yes, she has obligations. Yes, you're giving her a bed, you're feeding her, you're taking care of her. All her needs are going to be met with dignity. The alternative was a poor girl starving, literally day in and day out. If she's ill, nobody will take care of her. If she dies, she dies. Here, you are fully responsible for everything that this young woman needs. Okay.
Now, now, you could say, why do this? Go collect stucca. Go to, go to this shul, go to Archaim, go to Shiner's shul. A lot of people come and collect. Say, a lot of people say that my daughter needs food. Obviously, here again, if it's a situation where a father can support his family, you don't sell, you're not allowed to. That's what the Rambam is saying. The man does not have a shirt. Now, also, you go collect, you may not be successful. Maybe people have given you enough money. Maybe tomorrow, other people are going to have a crisis, you won't have who to collect. Here, you're really creating a security. Unfortunately, that she can't be in her house, but you're creating a security for this girl who now has a place. But let's now take it one step further. And this is where we see this subtle shift with marriage. And again, it's very important for us not to judge things based on 2023 after five thousand thousands of years of progress. There's a huge debate in America. It's, the debate is going on very, very many years, already from the early days. Recent years, it has taken on different tones. And that's the famous, whether you're the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Now, without getting into the personalities in the Republican or Democratic Party, I want to discuss for a moment the two hashkafas, the two perspectives of, let's call it, the more Republican approach and the more democratic approach when it comes to inequality and poverty. Winston Churchill, who was a smart man and a courageous man, and in 1940, when all of Europe fell to Hitler, he was the one, one, literally, last bastion who said, no, we will fight, we will fight on the beaches, we will fight on the land, we will fight in the air, we will fight and fight and fight and never give up. And literally was the resistance to Hitler before Roosevelt and America joined the war. He once said something, cute but profound. He said socialism, uh, capitalism, is the unequal distribution of wealth. Socialism is the equal distribution of misery. Of misery. Of misery. <laughs> he was of course describing what was happening in Russia's Soviet Union in his day, when Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky built the Communist Party, took over the Soviet Union, and in the name of paradise, created a living purgatory on earth, or as Animal Farm would say it, we're all equal, but some of us are more equal than others. Very good, you did your Orwell well. Orwell well. Okay. But we have a problem. If you look around America, there's rich people, there are poor people. There are very rich people. And there are very poor people. And this is part of the history of human civilization from the beginning of time. The Torah speaks about it. Maybe there comes a time where there's nobody poor, but usually in society there is an ani and an evyon, and that's why we all have in our, in our, in our, in our constitution, we have hilchis tzedakah. Hilchis tzedakah are not voluntary, they're obligatory. It's like a imposed taxation on a person who creates revenue, Baruch Hashem, that part of that money I give to the poor. But this is a gen- this is a general dilemma. How do you deal with it? Socialism and communism try to handle it in a very radical way. Nobody has anything, which theoretically seemed wonderful. <laughs> you don't have, I don't have, but we live in a kibbutz. There's one car and it goes to the person who needs it. You have ten kids, you'll get ten chalas. I have one, I'll get one chala. No jealousy. 
But somehow, the Soviet experiment was one of the worst experiments. Yes, 40, 50 million people dead for beginners. I had two parents, both of my parents grew up in the Soviet Union, so we grew up on stories of what life was like in the Soviet Union. But millions of people were enthralled by it. It sounded gewaldic. Equality, equality, equality. You don't have, I don't have, the problem is who does have? The state. Who owns the state? Ooh, he got to be a real saint and a real tzaddik. When Stalin owns the state, you're in trouble. Besides the fact, even if a saintly guy owns it, it takes away creativity. If, if, if I cannot generate anything that's mine, it takes away creativity. So it's not, it's not, it's a model that is, is, is very idealistic. It didn't work. It didn't work. But now you have, even within America, which is a society that cherishes ownership, I do make my own money, and it's mine. And halachically, that's true, it's consistent with Judaism. You're allowed to own your house, and it's your house. You're allowed to own your car, and it's your car. You're allowed to own your clothes, and it's your clothes. I have to give tzedakah, but there's also ownership. We have halachas of gneva and gzela, of theft. We don't say it all belongs to God, and you're not allowed to own it. Yeah, it belongs to God, but he gave it to you, that you're allowed to own it. I'm not going to take it from you unless I buy it from you, or you give it, gift it to me. But generally, when it comes to the question of poverty, we see a disparity. And two perspectives, and I'm going to do it in a very general way, because I know there's a lot of specifics and details. The democratic approach and the republican approach. Democratic approaches raise taxes and distribute more money to the poor, to the unprivileged, to the homeless, to the people who are struggling. You have to give them what they call equal equal opportunity, and not just equal opportunity, you have to give them an equal standing, and you were blessed with more money, so pay more taxes and distribute more wealth to those who are less privileged than you. Come the conservatives, the conservative party, so to speak, and they say, everybody has equal opportunity in the United States. They already have equal opportunity. Let them work hard. Yes, I have to pay taxes. Yes, we should help the unprivileged. Yes, we should help the sick. But everybody has equal opportunity in America. You know how my father started when he came from Ireland? I don't mean my father. He didn't come from Ireland. He came from somewhere else. right? But you'll hear every radio talk show host who's who's a conservative, talk about how their father came and how he built himself up and he worked nights and he paid himself through college and that's why I'm a millionaire today. And he got into medical school. Everybody has opportunity in America. There's no racism. There's no systemized bigotry. Don't cancel me. And therefore, why should I be taken advantage of and take more money because you're sitting on your couch and you're not working? And you're quitting school and you're not ready to get a degree. Work hard like I worked hard, like my father worked hard. Make money. And therefore, the conservatives argue with the Democrats. And they say it's not fair. They do have equal opportunity. They can work and work and climb the ladder. And I know both perspectives get people very, very upset. The first perspective gets one group of people upset. The second perspective gets another group of people upset and so forth. Here is the problem. The reason there is such a debate is because the system is a complicated one. Because the truth is, we do have a system where everybody could work. We do have a system where everyone has an opportunity to go make money. Theoretically, I could become tomorrow a multi-billionaire. But the fact is that sociology and culture and family and education have a lot to do with it. 
Yes, theoretically, I can get a degree. I can re- reach any space like many immigrants and refugees did. And it's amazing. And who knows that better than Jews, Holocaust survivors who came here and had a nickel in one pocket and a penny in another pocket. They came with six cents onto Ellis Island, right? And none of us who grew up in their homes or the homes of our grandparents ever realized what, how they transformed themselves. And it came through a lot of hard work, sweat, blood and tears on a physical level besides all of the other emotional, psychological and spiritual work. So that's true. That's true. And Jews have been beneficiaries of that opportunity that we had in order to flex our muscles, work hard, build communities, build families, build beautiful cities, moises and institutions. But let's face it. If I come from a wealthy family, right? My grandparents' vacation on Martha's Vineyard Every summer, they're sending me to Harvard University, right? $60,000 a year, $70,000 a year. You thought yeshiva was bad? Thank God you don't have to send your son to Harvard. (laughs) Huh? It's more than 50 a year? Really? You're sending somebody to Harvard? He got a scholarship. Baruch Hashem. Thank God. How much is it? Really? Oh, wow. Okay. Thank God my son doesn't want to go to Harvard. Okay, so right, so this family, this family sent their son to Harvard University. Over there, who is he going to be networking with? He's going to be networking with people that come from a similar bracket, similar financial bracket, similar families. They're all going to become executives and companies that their father or grandfather founded. Even if they're going to start off, they have connections, they have, they could call up in 20 years from now, each of them could pick up a phone to 20 people or 40 people who were with them in Harvard University when they were 21 or 19 years old. Each one worth in the millions and millions. And therefore I have investors, I have a support group, I have lifeboats, you have all this connection. The Gemara has an expression in Bikurim, it says, the poor get poorer, and the rich get richer. Basr aniyusa, basr aniyuzli aniyusa. Poverty follows the poor, richness follows the rich. The Gemara says it in Babakam in connection with the fact by Bikurim. The rich people, when they brought Bikurim, they brought their baskets to the Kayan with the new fruits, they came in silver or gold baskets. So they gave the fruits to the Kayan and they took back their baskets. But the poor people, they came with uh, wicker uh, wicker baskets, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so they gave it to the Kayan also. So they came home without anything. The Gemara says, the poor get poor, the rich get rich. So it's very nice to say we have equal opportunity and I can theoretically get any job. And if I work hard and I stay up at night, I'll get scholarship. Maybe. And that happens. But in reality, so much is based, and we know it in our own communities, based on mishpacha and demographics, right? And social standing. And the fact is that, you know, the Republicans have a point, right? I should distribute and distribute more. Work hard. But the Democrats say, come on, you know that this person came from a family. It was a broken family. There's no money in the family. What type of college is he getting into? There's no father at home. Whatever it is, all these things contribute amazingly and profoundly to the inequality. What's the real gap? What's the ultimate tikkun for this? What's the ultimate repair for this? The ultimate repair for this is not to tell rich people, just give money more and more and more and more because that perpetuates the inequality. Part of it is yes, part that, that's a, but a major part of fixing this is when ultimately 
demographics and different groups from different brackets and social and financial statuses start mixing with each other and become integrated with each other. That's why in Jewish community, the idea of a shul and a community is so important. You have to understand an ancient world on Shabbos, you can have on the same bench a master and a slave. Think about in the south. Think about it in the south. On Shabbos, the master got Revi and the slave got Chamishi. At the Kiddush, at the Kiddush, until today it's fascinating. I look at it sometimes. You know, I'll go into Martha's Vineyard. I want an appointment with, with, with Bezos or, or, or Musk or, or Bill Gates. You know, it's hard to get into these people, right? You come Shabbos, yeah, you see in a shul right here, no? there's a guy, he's worth $4 billion. He's eating herring and he's fighting with the herring, about the herring with another guy. Cause there's one piece of jalapeno herring. He's worth $3 billion. You understand? This guy's a schnorrer. He doesn't know how he's paying tuition. They're about to shut off his telephone electricity Monday morning. Thank God it's a holiday, so he gets till Tuesday morning. This guy, his thing is he's jealous of somebody else who just bought the company for $10 billion and he didn't have an investor. He only had nine. But they're fighting for the same piece of herring. And then they get into an argument about the rabbi's sermon. But that's a fascinating thing. Because in the yeshiva, you have both of their children sitting together. On Shabbos, they're both stavening. You know, they're arguing about the same parsha Sashavua. We take these things for granted, but they shouldn't be taken for granted. Because this is ultimately where people not only have dignity, but there's also a mixing. There's a humanness. You get to know me, I get to know you. You know, he may come from a different type of family, but this kid is a smart kid. I'm taking him into my company. And you know what? I don't mind if he marries my nephew. I'm going to tell him if she marries my nephew. I'm going to tell my sister tonight, okay, she should look in for her daughter to this kid. Okay. They won't have what to pay for Sheva Brachas. But you know what? It's going to be a good Shidduch. The fact, the fact that you had these opportunities, these things had to be created. They don't happen naturally. They don't happen naturally in, in, in a Gentile world that doesn't focus on community which by the Jewish people is so, so vital and important. All these interactions that are outside of your financial bracket. There's some things, but there's of course differences. <laughs> I remember I once had to come somewhere to lecture. It was a very wealthy group of people. Everybody came with private planes. That had to schlep two days in airports because it was some far place. You understand? It didn't feel so good. They were coming to hear me. But I had to schlep like a schlepper, fight for my seat and wait in the airport for 11 hours. And these guys landed, okay. It's also part of life. For that, we have therapists. <laughs> the best tikkun we can do for a society is when families mix. When a girl who grew up in a family that doesn't have a piece of bread at home, and she gets married to a wealthy, affluent family in the ancient world, everything changes. First of all, the whole perspective changes. Her future changes. Her parents already have different types of mechutanim. Suddenly there's Sheva Brachas together, besides the pictures and the arguments and the debates, who gets Bracha Achrita and so forth. But it creates a whole different dynamic. In the real world, this is what actually changed things, changes things for the better. Now her brother is already, right, a brother-in-law with another family. Now, this we take all this for granted because it happens every day. But it happens every day because of certain laws that were instituted. 
So now we come to the next step of this law. And this is very fascinating. Here there's a father who doesn't own a shirt. Remember, it's not that he doesn't own real estate. Melech, Bemeichel, the real estate. It's not that he doesn't have a leased car, so he can't go anywhere. The man can't afford ksus. Ksus is not a jacket. You can live without a jacket. He doesn't have an undershirt. He doesn't have underwear. He doesn't have a pair of socks. Ain't like ksus. He doesn't have a pair of shoes. You're talking about rags, homeless within homeless. And he has a daughter. So the Torah says, you have permission to give her, sell her. You could take money. She'll be in a house of affluence, get everything she needs. She'll work there. Remember, she has to be treated like a master. <laughs> whatever the owner gets and whatever his wife gets, she gets. That, yes. But the Torah says that's not enough. It's not enough. That is not enough. You would think it's not so bad that. It's not such a bad arrangement in a world where you could easily starve. And where a big percent of society died every year from pandemics, plagues, infectious diseases, violence, and starvation. Those were the three main causes of death. That probably 15, 20% of society died from those three causes. When we say in our prayers, Avinu Malkenu Kale, Dever, Vecherev, Virov, Till Corona, we read it, okay, this is not my issue. I got other issues. You know, my son needs a shidduch, my daughter needs this. Corona, we woke up a little bit, but this is serious. Kale, Dever, Dever is infectious diseases, pandemics. Cherev is sword, Rav, hunger. People woke up in the morning not knowing, will I have what to eat? Will I be able to feed my kids? Today, it's not what we think about when we wake up in the morning. We think about other stuff that make us stressful. Baruch Hashem, anxiety is still here 5,000 years later. The reason for anxiety is not that my refrigerator is empty. I know your kid says your refrigerator is empty, but you and I know that your refrigerator is not empty, okay? We know that. That's not my anxiety when I wake up at 6 or 7 in the morning. But this girl was experiencing this, so you would think you gave her a house. Yes, she has to stay there. It was a sale. There was a transaction. That's enough. The Torah says no. She should not go out like the regular slave. What does this mean? What this means is, don't think it's a regular transaction. She's going to work for this person. Remember, working for this person means she's being treated like a master. But still, she's going to work for this person. And then one day she'll go out like a slave. That was not the... I don't want her to go out like slaves go out. So what do you want? You want her to stay there forever? She has to be there forever? What if she wants to leave one day? (laughs) That's not fear. Aha. So here we have to listen to what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying. There always has to be a second agenda, a hidden agenda. What's the hidden agenda? The father likes this guy. The father really likes this guy. It's not just he has a couple of dollars. He's a good guy. He's a young fellow, or whatever his age, it's, it's not, the age here is not so important about the guy. But the point is, there's potential for something much more dramatic for my girl. She has her potential not just to be fed for a couple of years, or a couple of months. She has potential here for a whole different future, which I could not provide for her. I can't even make a shidduch because I can't pay for a wedding. Forget about a lechayim. Forget about helping them with an apartment. Forget about getting her a gown. I got nothing. I'm looking for an undershirt for me. Again, that's why it's hard for us to understand it. And we're turning it into humor. But if I'm in that position, 
It's far, far from funny. So the Torah says the only way a father can do this is if he looks at this fellow and says, you know what? There's something special. There's a future here perhaps for my daughter. Maybe not with him, but I like his boy. <laughs> he has a 16-year-old bachetel, right? That's a good kid. And you know what? It's a great family. And Baruch Hashem, they have parnosa. This would be amazing for my daughter. In other words, then she'll never have to leave the house. <laughs> She's going to become the matriarch. Doesn't mean she'll always remain enslaved. She won't have to leave. Because from a maidservant, she's going to become the wife. She's going to become either his or her son's. That has to be part of the agenda. It's not just enough. You gave her a place. She has a bed. She has food. What's not to? Better than death. That's stage one. We're not underestimating that. But stage two is, is there a real potential here? Which is the ultimate dignity for this person, that she's not just being fed. A wife is not fed by your husband. And if a husband tells that to a wife, you know, send them to me. You're not fed by your husband. <laughs> it's a partnership. As much as your husband does for you, you do for your husband. And usually, we're not going to talk about who does more. You'll figure it out. It's a partnership. There's a relationship. It's, it's oneness. It's like two halves of one soul. So she's not going to be a woman who's a Nebuch case, who I'm taking care of, but you have to, you know, help cook for Shabbos or clean up the dishes. Fine, I get that. A living. This is not a living anymore. She is the life of the party. A living means she lives in my house and I'm going to treat her very nice. And as we learned in Alocha, you got to treat her like a master. That means I'm not allowed to have a better mattress. I just want you to realize this. Some of us have livings, but you still have a better mattress. In this case, you're not allowed to have a better If there's a good mattress... She gets it. If there's a good coat, <laughs> the mink coat, you know who the mink coat goes to? I don't know how to say this nicely. It goes to this slave. <laughs> when people use the word slavery in Parshish Mishpatim, you have to be careful. Yen a slave. And there's one tennis bracelet and she wants jewelry. It's not so posh it. It's, it's mamish not posh it. It's, it's incredible. Still the Torah says that's not enough. You know why? Because she's still a poor recipient of your grace. There has to be something much deeper. Can we really overcome the brackets of the demographic split of the disparity of inequality by marriage? That changes the chess game completely. That changes a family. It transforms the dynamic. It's not anymore, you're the rich, I'm the poor, I pay taxes, send them to the poor people. No, no, no. I'm bringing you in. We're becoming one. Everything changes for this family. A family that was in the abyss, suddenly his mechutin, you know, is, is, is a Mr. Billionaire. So therefore, the Torah adds something else. And that is, the master's obviously going to have to, they're both going to have to want but if the girl wants, and the master wants, or his son wants, and the father sees the potential in that, we don't know that it's going to happen. Only then is he allowed to go through with this. So now let's see the next step. That's We don't want her to go out. We want her to stay. Because she's not a slave. She's going to become the woman of the house. Why should she leave? Her son, his son may be her husband. He may be her husband. That's going to be her house. Comes the Torah and says, Imra What happens 
if he doesn't see her in that light, you know, she may be a wonderful asset in the house, but he doesn't feel that this is this should be his wife. That's pshat. Asher loya And therefore he doesn't want to go into you and he doesn't want to betroth her. So the Torah says, don't sell her to somebody else because you betrayed her. So the question is, I ask, where did he betray her? He didn't do anything wrong. He bought her. But the answer is, this is called betrayal. What was the betrayal? Betrayal is if there's no potentiality for marriage. That's called betrayal. Even though it's not his fault, he's not obligated to, to marry this girl and his son is not obligated. But that's called begida. Why? I gave you, I gave you five years of food. Come on. I gave you everything. I was a nice, I thought a nice person. It's called betrayal. It's called betrayal, even though she came from the, from the, from the, from the, from the project. She came from nowhere. It's called betrayal. Not betrayal, I did something wrong. Not betrayal, I was mean. I wasn't mean. Betrayal because at the end of the day, she is the maidservant working for me and I'm the master. Don't think you could now sell her. You paid, you paid a half a million dollars, right? You don't want to marry? Give her to somebody else. Hello, such a nice. No, no, that's over. Why? Because there's no marriage. And look, it says, Loya Ada with a Vav. We read it, Loya Ada. We'll soon see why. Because when you buy her, it has to be with this condition. So what happens now you don't want to marry her? Vehevda. Vehevda means you have to help her redeem herself. What does it mean, help her redeem herself? Meaning any option she has to go free, you have to assist. So for example, if I bought this girl to help me in the house, you can't buy her for good. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's basically, really the word is, instead of slavery, it should be called, it's really like a lease. It's a contract. For, let's say for six years. I bought her for six years for $120,000. She worked one year. I see my son is not going to marry her. I'm not going to marry her. Right? So now I paid $120,000 for six years. So how much is that each year? $20,000. Now one year she worked. So what do I do? You get, Exactly. So you give him back. You give him back his money. Not the 20000 because she worked for him one year. You give him back $100,000 and he has to let her go free. He can't say... Uh, I bought for six years. Vehevda. There's no marriage. Fine. But any attempt to help her go free, you have to go free. Remember, the father got $120,000. Hopefully he invested it. <laughs> Hopefully after a year he has a couple of dollars. Vehevda. The father says, give her back. Gesundheit. I paid twenty, I paid $120,000. Give me back my $100,000, which I paid for for six years. $20,000 I lose because I already got that for the first year. That's called Vehevda. That's the second halacha here. There's no potential for marriage. Don't think you could sell her. You betrayed her because you didn't marry her even though you're not obligated. Now you have to assist the redemption. You can't say, a deal is a deal. I paid for six years. Tough luck. This is a girl. If she wants to go, the father has to give you back the money, of course. Comes the next case. Maybe not for him, but maybe his son. And maybe that's what the father saw in this family. That's fine. Gesundheit. hate. The son could marry her, but kemishpat habonos yasala. So important. Remember, she came in as a maid. She came in as a living. Don't treat her that way. She has to be seen as a regular young woman who is getting married. 
Don't say, you're a maid, I'm doing you a favor, I'm marrying you. No, 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 no. Yes, she came into work. You saved her from the, from the streets. True. But if you're marrying her, your son is married, it's a regular girl that you brought into marriage. She's like a daughter. It's not a specific law, this law, that law, that law. It's a general perspective. You're your daughter. The way your daughter, you want your daughter to be treated if she gets married to another family. You could think, she came in as a maid. I'm marrying a maid. You're not marrying a maid, you're marrying a wife. Somebody once came to a rabbi and he says, I don't like my marriage. The rabbi says, what happened? He said, I thought I'm getting a BMW. And I realized I ended up with a Buick. You remember the Buicks? The rabbi said, you know what your problem is? You thought you're marrying a car, not a wife. Now here I want to show you the subtleties of Jewish law. Anybody who would hear this halacha, people get a little queasy. Because they don't get it. And I want you to take a look at the next source. Rambam Hilchis Avadim Perik Dalit. This is one, two, three, four, five. Sixth source from the bottom. Take a Ketzad Mitzvah Siyud. If the son or the owner wants to marry this girl, what happens? How do they do it? <laughs> Remember, she's in the house already. <laughs> she worked a year, two years. What happened? What do you do? Ketzad. Oimer Labif Neishnayim. He says in front of two witnesses. The maximum time this girl could work in the house is six years. Impossible to hold her another day. I don't care how poor she is. I don't care how much food you gave. I don't care how much money you gave her. After six years, she got to go. But there's one option. You can get married. So he says, even at the end of six years before Shkia Sachama, in other words, in a few hours, the six years are over. The father or the son could say, Hare at But one second, don't we give a ring? You remember your chuppah? Somebody put a ring, right? What a... It doesn't have to give her anything. Why? Why not? We never have such a thing. If you want to betroth a woman, you have to give her something. A dollar, a ring, it has to be something that's worth money. Our minigas will be makadish betabas. Mazel tov. I assume they also use the tabaz. By you, that's what we use, a ring. Why not? Why? Listen to this. The original money that this man gave the father to buy her as a living, that was given for kiddushin. So let's see, I want you to think about this. Come on. This, this is like, ooh. You're buying a living... You gave money for Kedushan, so now you're not giving the girl anything? She was bought as a living, right? An employee to be there six years, and she has to be there. You paid a lot of money to her father, and she was purchased, and now she's working here. After six years, your son is older, and they like each other, and it's wonderful. They don't have to go out for dates because they're living in the same house, right? So the dating happens in the living room. Okay, so it works for all the communities. Nobody has to go out. And it's working. Fine. So what happens? The boy goes over to her. There's two witnesses. We do it fast. It's a cheap wedding. You are my wife. He doesn't give her anything. I mean, don't worry. He's going to be paying in different ways. He'll give gifts and gifts and gifts and gifts. But the Kiddushan doesn't. Why? 
So he says the original money six years ago was for the marriage. The money that the father got on her behalf, the father got because of her, that was for Kedush. What is the halacha trying to say? The halacha is trying to say something very deep. When you marry her after six years, you can't say six years she was a maid and now she became my wife. When did you, when did, when did that money go to be Makadashar? Six years ago. So retroactively, the first six years are redefined. Instead of calling it servitude or slavery or even a living employee, it's like she was a spouse from the beginning. So the moment she came in, even though you didn't marry her and you're not obligated, you're not obligated. If I bring a girl to my house and I'm paying for everything, I'm not obligated to marry her. I'm not obligated to give my son to marry her. But when you decide to do that, and they both agreed, it's not from now. It's from the first moment when the father took the money for her. This was Kiddushin money. It wasn't revealed for six years. But when it happens, the six years are redefined. She was a wife for six years. She wasn't a maid for six years. That's how sensitive the Torah is. I don't want you to look at this girl and say, she's my wife, but you know, our relationship is really one of... uh, I'm the successful one. Her father is Nebuchadnezzar Shlomazel, Ben Shlomazel, Ben Shlomazel, Ben Shlomazel. I'm the tzaddik. I took her in. And you know what? She's a, she's a pretty good girl. I gave it to my son. That's not the approach. The moment she came in, she came in as a princess. <laughs> the moment she came in, she came in as a daughter-in-law. The moment she came in, she came in as an aristocrat, as royalty. But that's not true. Yes, that money is not considered money for her work. It's considered money for her marriage. It's not the money, but it wasn't. Halacha says that's what it is. And how do we see? You don't have to give her any money now. She already got it. Her father got it. Because that money was for kiddushin. It wasn't money for work. It was money that you give a woman for marriage. When I give a ring to my wife under the chuppah, it's not because of the future laundry she's going to do. Say, <laughs> so here's a ring for a thousand. Paying you in advance for breakfast, lunch, dinner. And do me a favor, add a croissant. And no sugar in the coffee. No splendor either. And here is a ring. And by the way, here is a diamond ring in the Yichud room, right? For the extra stuff you're going to do. Make sure when you press the shirts, smooth, a little bit of a, that's not what you're giving, that's not what you're giving a ring for. It's her ring. It's not for work. So the money you gave this father, it wasn't for her work. It was for her marriage. Kiddushin it. Of course. So you're talking about two people who are really, you're talking about a father who, may, who, who is the kindest person in the world. He would do anything for his daughter. And unfortunately, he's in a very difficult situation. And this is it. And his question is, what's the most compassionate thing I can do for my daughter? I could schlep her with me from door to door and beg, which is not the right thing for a girl. <laughs> So the Torah says, this is a possible arrangement. But how often does this happen in society? Especially in our society, where there's a mitzvah of tzedakah, where you have to give 10% of your revenue. Where there's a mitzvah on the Jewish community to support the homeless, and to support the poor, and to support widows, and support orphans. And that's why in every Jewish community, from Matan Torah, there is tzedakah funds. And it was an obligation. It's not voluntary. Tzedakah is not voluntary. Tzedakah doesn't mean charity in, in, in Hebrew. Tzedakah means justice. 
in the Christian translation, King James Bible, tzedakah is charity. Charity means I'm charity. Tzedakah means tzedek. Tzedek means justice. Part of the money Hashem gives me is to be able to share. Part of it is for me and my needs. Part of it is share. You give 10%, you give 20% every person, but minimum meister. So how often does this happen? And when there was a poor person who didn't have food, it was an obligation on the community to give them food. So this was not a meister b'chol yom that there's a girl who doesn't have challah, doesn't have a piece of bread, doesn't have an undershirt, doesn't have a, uh, shoes. But it can happen. So right after Matan Torah, Moshe says, this is what we're going to discuss. Why are we going to discuss this? It's not 10% of society. It's not 5% of society. It may not even be 1%. It's not 1 in 100. It could be 1 in 1,000. It could be 1 in 10,000. It could be 1 in, in, in a million. But the point is, this is the person we want to think about. Right after Matan Torah, you would think, why don't you talk about practical stuff? Who's selling their girl? You have to be a Meshuggah and if you're not a Meshuganah, which means you really don't have anything, it's very rare. There's no cousin in the world who can help you, no brother, no father, no mother, no sister, nobody, nobody can help with this girl. You have to sell her. This is a desperate situation. We, we still, we all know we still have situations today where you have somebody, there's literally nobody there for them, right? The family is just completely disintegrated. And that's when strangers come in and rescue the situation. They're, 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 they exist. They're rare, but they exist. Unfortunately, today it's not so rare because of different dynamics. But the point is, this is the halachas he wants to talk about. He wants to tell the Jewish people, I want you to think about that girl. Right after Monday, I want you to think about that. Well, that girl doesn't exist. She exists. You think about her. So now, now comes the last pasik. The pasik yud. Okay, I married her. The son married her. We're treating her like a girl. The money that we gave was marriage money. It wasn't employee money. It wasn't work. But you know what? But still, <laughs> those were days because of the fact that there were always more women than men. Because of the fact that women, unfortunately in ancient society, Judaism had to change the whole dynamic of how you treat women. In the ancient society, right? Men believed, I own my children. I own my spouse. And in terms of protection and in terms of payment, women were very, very vulnerable. So if a woman wants, people think it's forced. It's not how luckily if a woman wants, she can agree to marry a man who has another wife until Rabbeinu Gershon prohibited it, which was called polygamy. So a person says, you know what? She'll be my wife, but let's remember she was a maid. <laughs> so she'll be a little subservient to the, my real wife. Says the text, If you're going to take a second wife, you make sure that this woman who came in as an employee to work, her food, her clothes, and even her intimacy, which represents the relationship, nothing is diminished from her dignity. In other words, she has to feel like a regular spouse. And if these three things are not done, she goes out. No money. What's that talking about? Which three things? Now we know. Number one, you decided she's not for you. Number two, you decided she's not for your son. Or your son decided she's not for him. Number three, the father or her didn't have any money to redeem her. The father or her didn't have any money. They can't give him back the $100,000. So now what happens? Now there's already no reason for her to be there. 
If he, you're not marrying her, the son is not marrying her, the father can't redeem her, so you get back your money. Now there's no reason. Now essentially, let her go. A girl needs to have her dignity, even though you're a wonderful man and you gave her so much. But the question is, when? When does she go out for free? When? A day later? Like, you have to have some limit here. Again, it's so ambiguous. I did pay 120000 bucks. Like, I just throw it in the garbage because the next day, you say she goes out. It's a, it's again. It's a very very ambiguous system. How long? Okay, I'm going to let her go. I'm not going to take back a cent. No problem. The father. I don't know what he did with his money that I gave him. Whatever he did, what he did. He's a real shlomazel. He lost that money too. Whatever happened, I paid money. And what if the guy says, you know what? I'm thinking about marriage, and he's waiting ten years. I mean, my son is thinking about marriage. Is there a time limit? So here is what Chazal come in the Torah Shabbat Pan say. Till the time that a, a girl at that time used to usually get married, which was called a Naira. A Naira is usually at the age of 12 years old, which was in the ancient times, very common age where a girl would get married. So at that point, she has to go free. Which means, which means, once a girl is 12, none of this applies. So you, you could understand the desperateness of the situation. You're talking about a seven-year-old girl, an eight-year-old girl, a ten-year-old girl, eleven. You're not talking about a twenty-five-year-old young woman. You're talking about a little baby, right? That has nothing. You understand? So the father says, "You know what? Let her work in the kitchen. She'll help cook. She's a good tomato and feed her." And that's what happens. Titus says, "Only if there's a real potential here for the future." Now you may marry her. Your son may marry her. If not, let him give you back the money and let her go. But if none of this can happen, then the moment she reaches the age of Naira, which is the usual age of marriage, and you decide, or your son decides, it's not for you, I bought her a year ago, or six months ago, that's it. That's it, there's no potential for marriage, even though they're not giving back any money. Obviously, you have to plan this when you do it, you don't want to just throw out a half a million dollars. The moment she's ready to get married, and you don't want to take her, Another thing is, after six years, meaning if she was bought potentially at the age of five or at the age of six, there's no Jewish servant or maidservant who can work for more than six years. Not a male, not a female. Six years is always the, the end. So therefore, even if she was four or five, after six years, she's free. Or when she becomes 12, she's free. Even if it was less than six years. Or if there was Yoival, which is like six years, it's another option of six years, Jubilee, everybody went free. Or she redeemed herself, or you married her, your son married her, and then she doesn't have to redeem herself because she uh, she becomes the matriarch, she becomes a woman in the family. So what do we see from here? We're talking about a case. What was the lecture of Moshe Rabbeinu? The father doesn't have a penny to his name. The man doesn't have a shirt to wear, as the Rambam says. He wants her, first of all, to live, but he also wants her to have a bright future. Not only a bright future and somebody to help her, but also perhaps something that can drastically change her entire trajectory and her entire family and their entire family. That is what the Torah is talking about. And that rare situation Moshe Rabbeinu is addressing, how we look out for this girl without, without making believe that nobody is allowed to have any money. Torah doesn't believe taking away all his money and giving it to him. Because that doesn't help. That creates the equal distribution of nobody having anything. 
We're not going to help homeless by everybody giving away their house. And so now I don't have a house. I'm homeless. So you give me your house. So I take your house. You, you want to you want a way that the home you want a way the homeless should have a house, but those who have a home should also have a house. That's the brilliance here. That's a very subtle. It's very easy to say, give away your house. Thank you. And now what am I supposed to do? I'll give you a place in the basement. Ultimately, you want to look for tikkun. You want to look for repair. This is real tikkun. You're giving her a home. You're giving her a new home. It becomes her house. And it changes everything in terms of the demographic, the bracket, the social status, the financial status, etc. If not, help her redeem herself. Or when she reaches the age of a wedding, a naira, 12, she goes free. Or the, the, or the, or the end of six years. Now here, we come to the last point with which we're going to finish. And that is, as we learned many, many times, every mitzvah has a parallel in the spiritual, emotional world. This is no exception. When you take a look at the Zohar, you see the Zohar says it's a whole different story. <laughs> it's a whole different story. And suddenly we'll see how the halacha, the technical halacha and the spiritual halacha parallel each other in a beautiful and very meaningful way. So take a look at Zayar. This is almost the, the one, two, three, four, fifth source from the bottom. Zayar Parshas Mishpatim. Kiyim Kerish Dakut Shabrichu. Esbitai Elu Yisrael. Ish is referring to Hashem. His daughter is referring to the soul of a Jew. The inun misitra the bas yichidis kiyubita. Every Jew is called a bas yichida, like an only daughter. Kiyim kareish as bitter. What does this mean? Hashem sells the soul of the Jew la'ama as a maidservant. What does this mean? Loi seitzek itzeis havadam. So the zayar delves into this briefly, and then the tzemach tzedek. The grandson of the Balatanya, as I say, for Eir HaTayr and Parshas Mishpatim, he explains this on a spiritual, psychological, and emotional level, and I'm going to do this very briefly. Ish is Hashem. Every soul is called Bas. Like a Bas Yechida, like a daughter, a child, an only child. The Baal Shem Tev said Hashem loves every Jew more than a parent loves an only child who was born at a time when they didn't think they'll be able to have children. In other words, there's a tremendous empathy, sensitivity, and affection. And yet there comes a time that the soul, Bitai, is sold, La'ama. And she goes out of his house and goes into another house. And the idea here is, this is really the Neshama coming down into physical embodiment. And it goes into a new home. Suddenly the home is the body, the earthly world. And here the name changes. From a daughter, it becomes an Amma. What's the difference between a child and somebody who works in my house? A child, you never say, you know, she wants a raise, you know, maybe I'll give it to my friend. Your child wants a raise, you say, you know what, go to another family. The relationship of a parent and a child is intrinsic, it's one. When you take your child home, you don't say, you know, if you behave, you'll stay. And if not, we'll give you up for adoption. We're going to find a nice family. That's not what parents do, unless it's a very desperate situation like our situation. You have situations where the parents are not functional, where they're starving, where they're not healthy, where a mother can't take care of kids, and then unfortunately you have to change things. But it's not what we choose. A child is intrinsically connected to parents. You don't have to create the connection. That's who we're one. When I hire somebody to work for me, they're essentially somebody else. 
It's a person, they have their own life, they have their own family, they have their own needs. That's what an Ummah is, that's what a, a living is. She may be living by me, but it's not biologically, they're not biologically connected, and therefore they may choose to leave after a year. They're going to go to another house. I can't unchoose my parents, even if I have some struggles with parents. People have struggles with the parents. These are your parents. Got to work it through, one way or another. So when the neshama, before it comes down, the soul experiences itself as completely one with the divine, one with infinity. But kayim kayish, when the soul comes into the body, la'amma, it can experience itself as now an amma. It doesn't feel necessarily its intrinsic oneness with ain't saif. Because it's experienced itself as independent, as autonomous. And what happens here? It could also feel sold. When I sell something, it goes out of my property, out of my domain. In other words, I experience a sense of separateness, a sense of independence, even a sense of loneliness. And that's part of the reality of a soul in this world that feels lonely. We say, say somebody sold me. I sold you. It basically means it went out of my property, went out of my domain. That is the experience that the soul can have in this world. There is a sense of loneliness, a sense of pain. The soul doesn't necessarily experience fully and consciously its oneness with Hashem Echad, with the Ein Saif, with infinity. So, And when the soul comes into the body, and it can feel estranged and alien from the source, like the Pasuk says in Parshish Mishpatim later, you look at the donkey of your enemy and it's crouching under its burden and you don't want to help it. So the Baal Shem Tov says, Chamer is the same letters like Chaymer. Chaymer means the material. When you look at your material self, Sainacha could look like it's an enemy of the soul. It's crouching under its burden. The donkey doesn't want to move. It's too heavy. The body says, I don't want the burden of godliness. I don't want the burden of Torah, I don't want the burden of Yerushalayim, I don't need the burden of justice and morality and sensitivity and love and transcendence and working on myself, I don't need it. The donkey says, I want to just chill forever. So you say, I want to abandon. I'm done with my body. That was an approach that people had. Even mortifications. I want to reject my body, which is an enemy to the soul. So now the soul went into this new household. La'ama and it's feeling the estrangement, it's feeling alien, it's now embodied by a new master. Suddenly the body, I gotta eat breakfast, now is lunch, now is dinner, nap, I gotta go to sleep, I need vacation. <laughs> it's a whole new house, a whole new household. The body has its own needs, its own issues. Comes the Torah and says, The purpose of this was not that the soul should be tortured in a foreign home. And always be seen as a slave who one day will go free. The ultimate vision here is there should be a marriage. There should be a unity. And that's why the Pasuk continues, Don't abandon the donkey. Help the donkey. You see the donkey, it's your enemy's donkey. It's halacha. If I see my enemy's, let's call it a car, flat tire. Today it's called a flat tire. Then it was a donkey who crouched under its burden and it's my enemy. I don't like him. Go for it. go call Haverim. Don't call me. But then there were no Haverim. <laughs> so you have to be the Haverim. I have to go help the donkey. Because it's my enemy's donkey, but the donkey is suffering. 
Says the Baal Shem Tev, it's also talking about your own donkey. We all have a donkey. We all have a chamar. Chamar, the letter is chamar. So the, the Navi Daniel, Schaya says, how is Mashiach going to come? Ani v'raychev, al hachamar. Mashiach is going to come riding on a donkey. I want to ask you, today's world, we can't give Mashiach up as a nice car? Everybody's driving nice cars. Everybody's going on private jets to Simchas. Mashiach can't get one? Nobody in Lakewood and Muncie and uh, Williamsburg and Erzisor uh, could get Mashiach up as a nice car? He's going to have to come on a donkey? In poor. Nobody can give him on a dava? The Maral says the word chamoir is chamer. Ani v'roichavol ha-chamoir. Mashiach's revelation is going to be on through the donkey. Not the spite of the body, through the body. When the soul is sent down to Ammah, it's not a sentence of torture. Go into a stranger's house, hopefully your body will be half decent to you, and we'll give you a couple of, uh, a couple of meals. The real potential is marriage, Ya'ada. For him, for his son. What does it mean marriage? That the neshama and the guf will become one. Because a marriage is that a husband and a wife are not just living together like in a yeshiva dormitory. He does his thing, she does her thing. <laughs> she does her thing. I know it happens sometimes. But the real idea is, v'hoyu l'basar echot. They merge. They merge into oneness. So that's the ultimate loisetzik It's not just one day she's going to say, leave me alone, get me out of this place. I'm an evid, get me out. And when she becomes emancipated, baruch shepatrani. That's one vision of life. That's a vision of life, a soul that comes into a body and is tortured and feels oppressed and feels like a slave and does the best it can. And the moment can fly away, Baruch Shepatrani. The ultimate vision is Loisetzik, it says, that the body can become an equal partner to the Neshama. That the two become one and integrated, like a married couple. <laughs> and each one contributes something very precious because the re- ultimate vision of Yiddishkeit was not to oppress the donkey, to crush the donkey, to tell the donkey you're a lazy, bad fellow. It's to sublimate, to realize the divine potentiality in this household for the soul. Yes, there's situations where sometimes that doesn't work and you have to redeem yourself. There's an issue of six years. There's an issue of a naira. There's yovel. There are all different methods. But the pachlis that the Torah is saying is that the husband and the body, the husband, the body and the soul could become like a wife and a husband. This says in Zohar, Avram is like the soul and Sarah is like the guf, the body. And the Torah, Hashem tells Avram, whatever Sarah tells you, you should listen to her. And the question is, if Sarah represents the guf, we're always told, don't listen to your guf. But the Gemara says about Baba Basra that the Avais lived a, a Mashiach life. Hashem gave them like, and in the world of redemption, you listen to your body. Because the body is not an enemy, the body is a best friend. There was a time in certain stages in history where you have to control your body and discipline your body, and you have to control and discipline your body. But the body is seen almost like an enemy. In the ultimate tikkun, the body is your best friend. The body is sorry, man. Hashem tells Avram, listen to the gulf. Shema Bekoila. Your body, your body has this lot of wisdom. <laughs> we know today more and more the value of what the body contains. The wisdom of the body, the depth of the body, the intensity, the, the powerful spirituality in the body, in the nervous system, in all parts of the body. The brain and, and the entire nervous system of the body and all of the organs and limbs, every aspect of the body. The gulf, it has an inherent kedusha. In fact, 
It says in Svarim that when Mashiach comes, Haneshaman is Zainis min haguf. The soul is going to be nurtured through the guf. Today the body is nurtured through food, and it gets direction from the soul. Then the innate holiness of the body is going to be revealed. It's going to become a mashpia. A mashpia to the guf, to, to the neshama. So the neshama is both the husband and the wife. <laughs> and Eshashchayla, Teres Baila. That's what ye, that's what Yiud is. And in fact, that's the idea. So it says in Zohar, means when slaves leave their master's house, they usually want to run away. For good reason. Like what happened in America in the South. So when the Jewish people were in Egypt, they went out like Havadim. They ran. Like we learned a few weeks ago, they ran away. Parisu, they ran away. It says when Mashiach comes, Loi bichipazin telechu, the Navi Yeshaya says, it's gonna be relaxed, you're not gonna rush. It says, Loi Then Hashem won't have to run away like an Evet, because it's gonna be with integration. The goof is gonna be part of it. So I don't have to run, I don't have to run away from certain parts of myself. All parts of myself will be connected. There was a great Talmud, the Chasr of the Balatanya, his name was Rabhilo Paracher. So he said, I, when I was young, I thought that the body is, a disgusting thing that I have to reject. And it's the source of all evil. It's the source of all spiritual problems. He says, then he learned from the Balatanya that it says in Iyayv Mipsari Echze Eleka. Iyayv Perikites in your source sheets. From my flesh I will perceive God. That the body is actually a mirror for Hashem. Mipsari from my flesh Echze Eleka. I'll see Hashem. He said, suddenly I have a new Derech Eretz. I have a new, a new respect for the Guf. So that's what the Baal Shem Tev said. Don't crush the donkey. Ozoiv tazoiv imay. Lift it up. Lift it up. Sometimes Sometimes the Gufan and the Neshama have dissonance because a person, sometimes there's an alienation. Yeah, you need Shalom bias. But the ultimate purpose is Yiyud. The ultimate, the ultimate purpose is the integration, the marriage, the synthesis. And that's why the second last source, the Magad of Mizrich wrote a letter to the son of Avram Amalach in Yiddish. Akleina lechele in guf is a greisa lechele in the shama. A small hole in the body could be a big hole in the soul. In other words, something, it's, my body is suffering. Ignore it. He said that sometimes a big hole. The body is very in tune with the soul. So if the body is telling me something, I have to listen to it. Sarah is speaking. Shma Bekaila, don't ignore Sarah. <laughs> Sarah is the goof. Don't desire says Sarah is the goof. You have to listen to it. Because the ultimate purpose of creation was not the separation. The ultimate purpose was to reveal the harmony between the material and the spiritual, between heaven and earth, between consciousness and embodiment, between soul and body. To the point that they're one, like the Pasik says in Eiv, Echad Be'echad Yigashu. Echad meets Echad Veruach Loyave Benayim. And there should be no separation between them that ultimately the Neshama and the Guf experience full synthesis, which is the whole concept of a time when the body experiences the same eternity like the soul, and even the bodies that already died, is the Tchiyas HaMesim, because of the ultimate unity between the Neshama and the Guf. Have a wonderful week. Next week we're on, 9.30 a.m. Have a beautiful week. 
This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.